0: Welcome to Candler in Conversation, the platform for engaging in conversations about faith, theology, and public life, hosted by the Candler Foundry. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of our guests and not necessarily of Candler School of Theology. Today, I've invited three guests to help us consider the question, how do we find balance? First, we have Dr. David Kim. Dr. Kim is the founder of the Research Institute for Counseling and Education. He is a licensed professional counselor in the state of Georgia and has enjoyed providing psychotherapy for over 19 years. He's an adjunct faculty at the Mercer Medical School in the Marriage and Family Therapy Program and maintains a private practice in Peachtree Corners, Georgia, where he works with individuals, couples, and families in both Korean and English languages. Dr. Kemp is also a Master of Divinity graduate of Candler, a Master of Pastoral Counseling graduate of Boston University, and a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision graduate of Mercer University. Thanks for being here, David.
1: I just said, uh, thanks so much for inviting me.
0: Next, we have LaRonda Little. LaRonda is a mystic, a healer, a teacher, and a pastor who draws from her rich cultural, and spiritual heritage to nurture and guide others back to wellness and wholeness. It is in the church that LaRonda became an influencer in women's health and well being. Deeply concerned by the, the intersectional challenges of socioeconomics, race, gender, politics, and the environment, she began to explore how faith affected health and the meaning of salvation through the lens of health and wholeness. She graduated with her Master of Divinity degree from Candler in 2018, and is now a PhD student in spiritual care and pastoral theology in the graduate division of religion. She also leads programs in spiritual formation, women's ministry, and health in church and community. Glad to have you, Loranda. Thank you for having me, Crystal. And finally, we have Emily Rivers. Emily is an experienced health and wellness advocate, yoga instructor, and follower of Jesus. In May, Emily graduated with her Master of Divinity Degree with a Certificate in Faith and Health from Candler, and now she works as a part-time yoga instructor and a youth pastor at Harrison Church in Pineville, North Carolina. Emily is a provisional deacon in the Western North Carolina Conference of the United Methodist Church, and looks forward to continuing her journey towards ordained ministry. Through her compassion-filled yoga instruction, skills in pastoral care, writing, and preaching, Emily has guided hundreds of people to recognizing their own inherent worth by giving them the tools and confidence to see their own volition, strength, and light within. Welcome back to Candler, Emily.
2: Thanks for having me, Crystal.
0: And so with 2021 on the horizon, there's a question out there of will it be better than this year that we've all collectively experienced. And so whether we call this a new normal or not, we've all had to make adjustments to the ways in which we work, worship, learn, and whatever else we do daily. But sometimes these adjustments come monthly weekly, and even on the day to day, as we just respond to the multiple crises that we're experiencing. And so my first question for you all is, how do you define balance? What does it look like? And is it something that's even achievable? Miranda, I'll allow you to start. <laughs> I'll start, yes.
3: Um, and thinking about the notion of balance in our particular context and in the world. Um, I, was com- I came up with this definition of the, the pie in the sky, the notion of balance, um, which is the capacity and ability to fulfill all of one's responsibilities in a given time while also maintaining one's well being psychologically, uh, physically, and spiritually. And looking at balance um, in this way, that is rarely, if ever, achievable. Um, In reality, um, what has my immediate attention, and, and this is probably true for most people, what has our immediate attention is what gets done. Um, Does that mean we're in balance? Maybe, maybe not, but I don't think that there's anything wrong with that either. I don't think there's um, anything problematic of doing the thing that has our immediate attention. Um, But the issue comes in when those achievables um, are accompanied with feelings of, of guilt. Um, if I choose to stop studying in order to cook dinner, or the laundry, or I choose to stay up late in order to complete what I didn't do during the day, um, that comes with these feelings of inadequacy sometimes. So how do we mitigate the feelings of inadequacy and guilt is the next question to consider. and and. I offer that in doing the thing that has our immediate attention, um, we begin by affirming our humanity and that of others. Um, and sometimes the most affirming and the most ethical response to the myriad of requests and responsibilities that we have is a no. And no is not always a negative thing. In fact, no, isn't negative. Um, And engaging more in those activities that affirm our uh, humanness and that of others um, is in and of itself a good thing. Um, And the final thing I will say about that to mitigate the feelings of inadequacy and guilt. Um, I would also say that um, we replace that feeling with gratitude. Um, Whatever the activity is that we can do in the moment is a gift, I would say. In that moment, if we can get it done, if we have the opportunity to to do it, then count it as a, a gift and give thanks for it. And I'll stop there.
1: Well, I, I thought about the question and what it reminded me was a conversation I had long time ago when I was at Kendler. And this is, um, I'm a class of 96. Yeah, so when I was there, Thomas Tangerach was there and I really looked up to him a lot. And I remember uh, making an appointment with him one day because I think I had struggled with like a lot of death anxiety. You know, uh, I think that's why, one of the reasons I went to private seminary was to kind of dive into that. But like, he's, so I said to Dr. Tangraj, I said, you know, I just don't believe that there is life after death. What I was hoping to hear from Thomas was, David, that's silly, of course there's something after death. But he didn't say that, he said, you're right. And that was like really kind of blowing, you know, it was a crisis of faith moment. And this is what he said, he said uh, salvation is contextual. And uh, if if you live in abject poverty, to live through the night is your salvation. But for us middle class with a lot of privileges, maybe our salvation is heaven somewhere. And so I, when, I, when I saw the question, I think that what reminded me of our conversation that balance also is contextual. Uh, what, you know, what kind of balance are we looking for? And typically, I think we talked about like, if you look up balance on internet, it usually talks about like work, life, love balance. But what if persons struggle with uh, underemployment, especially in times of COVID, uh, how do we their sense of balance is different, and so if the balance is a, a as a it's a process more than a destination, then I think we can really appreciate that you know the act of balance is always dynamic. You know, it's not stable like oh balance I found it you know I'm now walking straight, but it's always kind of compensating here, compensating there, uh, and and trying to figure out what makes sense at the moment for all of us. And I think it's very contextual. And I think um, I, I lose balance all the time <laughs> and I feel like I'm lost all the time. Uh, but, um, and I really, really love what uh, LaVonda said about, you know, not feeling de- you know, debilitated by that or feeling guilty and shame that it it makes us shrink as a personhood. uh, But to be able to live with full integrity, acknowledging places of brokenness, and to be able to still sustain some level of integrity in what we do. Um, And I wonder if that is how I thought about what balance might look like. Uh, But it's always kind of elusive. And I think we're kind of always looking for it. And it's very contextual.
2: I love what you both have said. It makes total sense to me. I feel like I approach this question from a perspective of like a yoga and fitness instructor. And I think about balance as this ability to, just, to stay steady. So I practice standing on one foot. So I'm practicing standing on one foot. I'm in the floor, like I'm doing all right. I'm doing OK. I've gotten used to this. I've got the muscle memory down. But now you ask me to go practice standing on one foot on a dock or a boat something that's moving the environment has changed that contextual aspect that you point to David yeah the wind is blowing there's distractions maybe I didn't get enough sleep last night my balance is off <laughs> and so I think about okay well maybe instead of standing on one foot I put both feet down so I need extra support right now because my environment is changing and I can't balance the way I did before or maybe I need to just sit down I mean, maybe I can't even stand on two feet right now. Um, And so I think kind of what LaRonda was saying with the guilt and the shame that we have sometimes if we have to, if our balance is changing or our life is, you know, chaotic is being able to have that compassion and to see the internal and external environment that there's some aspects of balance that we can control and there's some things that we can't. We can't often control what situation we are in. Um, And I think how do we become, how do we find some sort of power there is we get to choose our response. And maybe our response is I'm going to be compassionate to myself in this moment because you know what I can't cook dinner for my kids and complete all my assignments and you know, wash the car. I don't know, you know, all those things that you got to (laughs) do and get enough sleep and go exercise because, you know, people tell me to do that because that's good for your health, right? No, you're stressed out. (laughs) So I think it's like having that perspective of, well, what is my situation right now? How can I hold myself with compassion? And as my environment changes, how can I adapt? So where can I get some more support? so that I have two feet under me instead of just one. Maybe as my situation changes, I can go back to standing on one foot, but for right now I need some extra support. And so that's what I think about um, with with balance and the muscle memory. I I love how you said, David, it's a process because I do think we can live in this process of balance, but it's not like a check and I'm done sort of thing.
0: Yeah. I love all three of your answers. And I really just want to hone in on this compassion building exercise or space. How does one start to develop that, that muscle that I can recognize when I need to be more compassionate towards myself? Because it's not something that happens overnight um, in different instances.
3: The, the first thought that comes to me with that question, Crystal, is letting go of the notion that we have to be all things to all people. There's, a, there's a, an arrogance to that attached to it. So I think we could tr- begin from a place of humility Um, And I'll go back to what I said before is seeing ourselves as as human beings who are given to, you know, human things and human proclivities, that is to be tired um, or to be overwhelmed and to recognize that we're susceptible, yeah, to emotion. Um, When we need to cry, release that. So going back to, you know, humility and affirming our right to be human. Um, I think I can speak
1: about this from a clinical perspective. And, um, I remember this is years ago, uh, like 20 years ago in training, uh, one of my client was a professional model and, uh, she really was by any standard stunningly beautiful. But I remember the word that she used to describe herself was monstrously ugly. And so there was really a disconnect between how she saw herself, called that internal mirror, and how others saw her, which is external mirror. And, um, you know, a little bit background, that like her, her mother had her when she was 17. And her, and her father left when her mother left, turned 20. And, you know, 20-year-old is still pretty young. Uh, she was also struggling with substance abuse, her mom it was very mean, and she would say a lot of mean things to my client. And uh, she really internalized those criticisms a lot. And I remember, like, there were five things she said you're too skinny, flat chested, angular, tomboyish, little boys, whatever, love you. Like, those are like her internal mirror that she saw herself. And, uh, you know, it took some long time to. Undo that internalized mirror and find different mirroring. And I think when you think about the question you asked about how do we start changing and more compassionate towards ourselves, so I think where we have to recognize that like we have a lot of internalized mirroring from negative sources, including not just our uh, parents and family of origin, but our culture has a very kind of rigid standard of what beauty is. It's driven by market and profit. Uh, and like somehow these mirrors tell me that I'm less than. Uh, these tell me, you know, so I think uh, part of it, I think has to be recognizing these mirrors through which I find myself that I, who I am uh, as a person are influenced by these things. And, uh, you know, therapy helps, uh, spiritual direction helps. But like, I often ask uh, for those clients of mine who are Christians, like, what if God is your mirror who loves you unconditionally, with unconditional regard? What would that look like? Um, and they, you know, they start to reconstruct uh, themselves. Uh, but that is a process. And I think it's a good question. It's not easy, especially if you've been living with this internalized critical mirror for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And to unlearn that and to find different mirroring Uh, But, um, you know, prayer helps, meditation helps. uh, And I think ultimately uh, that has to translate into compassion towards others. And I think it's a parallel process between compassion towards myself and compassion towards others. And it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in the context and it has to involve community uh, as well as, because community is my mirror, right? And I have to address both personal and uh, the communal aspect of that.
2: It reminds me of my favorite scripture verse is, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I think we forget the as yourself part. (laughs) Like if I don't know how to love myself, how can I extend that compassion and that kindness to the earth, to creation, to God, and to the people that are around me. I know that, um, yeah, what we consume, I think definitely is a huge part of that. The media, just the people we surround ourselves with. I mean, can we surround ourselves with people who are compassionate? Can we surround ourselves with people who rest, who take breaks for themselves, who don't criticize themselves all the time? Because I think what we forget is when we see other people doing that, Sometimes we think, Oh, so I got to criticize myself. I have to work until 10 o'clock in the evening. I have to do X, Y, and Z for my children. Whereas if you surround yourself with people who are like, yeah, I made a mistake or, you know, what, I'm going to go to bed because I'm really tired tonight. Um, I think who we surround ourselves with, which we can sometimes control and sometimes can't control is one thing that we can do. One exercise that I find really helpful for myself because I think I have some of those mirrors absorbing cultural expectations and narratives is I think about myself as a child and I even sometimes take out a picture of myself when I was a kid and, and I look at myself and I'm like, I wouldn't say that to five-year-old Emily. Why am I saying that to 26-year-old Emily? And I'm the same person. I'm humanizing myself again, like LaRonda said, and, I think if we can do that, or if, if it doesn't work for yourself, think about a sibling or a dear friend or a partner. I've got three sisters, and sometimes I think about, I would never say that to my little sister, Molly. Why am I having that in my mind right now? Mindfulness, I think we have to be aware of it, for one thing, is being able to say, oh, I am being critical of myself or rude to myself or just straight out mean, and then from that awareness, being able to shift it to something that's more compassionate, holding yourself a little bit more softly.
3: Um, I love, uh, Emily, what you just said about um, who we surround ourselves with and, and you're um, mentioning, David, of community. In these communities and in the people that, that we hang with, there should be an allowance for, or uh, um, an allowance for truth telling. So, when we start to be self deprecating and when we start to be overly critical of ourselves, the people around us should be able to call us out on it and say, Don't do that to yourself. So, I thank y'all for, for
0: pointing that out. I think that's critical. Actually, Rhonda, that leads me to another, another one of our questions, since we are referencing community. Um, what are your suggested practices for creating safe spaces in communities for healing? So what you just mentioned.
3: Okay, so one of the biggest gifts that I got before I graduated from Candler was um, a small group of Two very dear friends, um, and our a covenant relationship we developed, and we committed to meeting at least once a month um, for a meal, um, FaceTime, as it were, um, or in some other aspect, so we could um, be for each other accountability. Um, and a safe place where we can talk about ministry matters um, and personal matters. Uh, that, that's that been the, the biggest gift um, that I gave myself, that we gave to each other upon graduation. Now, that can easily be modeled in other aspects of life. Everybody's not in ministry per se, but if you have two or three friends um, that you all have a common thing. Um, Doctors for David, maybe um, other yoga teachers for Emily or youth pastors. But if there is a group in which you can um, associate yourself with and there is a, a, a common thread among the group, I think that's a great place to start. Building a safe space um, for yourself. I love that. Um, and I
1: think, you know, all of us here have some background in ministry. Uh, I had a chance to do solo pastoring, I think it was from 2000, 2006. And this was in Massachusetts, Cambridge, Boston. And I think ministry I think also therapy too, and probably yoga instructor, but especially in uh, ministry and in, in also in therapy, it really is an isolating you know uh, occupation it's, there's an occupation hazard. Uh, one of the things that I decided to do as I became a therapist is to start a group practice because I know it can be a very isolating process of being a therapist I mean You see people all the time, but, you know, it's in your office and you're isolated. And having other community of therapists to share the burden and uh, process that is very helpful. So I have that. I have about seven clinicians in my uh, group practice. We share uh, burdens together. We share, uh, you know, we have monthly uh, staff meeting, but they're really monthly check-ins about what's going on in life and you know, we keep house business too, but it's really more about what's going on. Uh, we do medications together sometimes. We used to do walks together in the past when we had a smaller uh, staff, more time, but that's not possible, especially with COVID. Uh, recently, I've joined, in this is since I think May of this year, uh, Asian-American therapists that we meet online and it does every Saturday uh, afternoons. Uh, And there are not that many of us, Uh, but so we meet, this is across the nation and there are more, but uh, people who have responded are a handful, maybe nine of us get together every Saturday afternoon and we talk about sometimes our caseload. Sometimes a graduate student might join us and ask about what does that look like. Uh, And there was a time when there was a a white man came and joined us, wanted to do the network with Asian folks. And uh, I, did, I, I was a little bit shocked, but like I was really happy to see other uh, really strong women say, hey, you don't belong here. This is our space and we need to have it, you know, um, it's, it's a very sacred space, safe space. Uh, I think that's really important as, as you talked about them. And I also have my faith group that I go to church with. It's a Korean American church. Um, and you know, you probably know that Korean churches tend to be more, you know, uh, right, uh, very conservative, evangelical, which is all cool and all that. But that's just just know where I am. I'm more progressive, liberal, and our church is very uh, cognizant about using inclusive language. Uh, we are working towards uh, participating in Pride this year uh, as a, probably one of the first Asian church to do that. Uh, but, uh, you know, COVID happened and a lot of things got hold. But like, this is kind of, for me also, a place, a community that I stand on. Uh, but I think that's really important part of who, who we are, who I am. I know uh, I can't exist outside of that. Uh, so, I, I, I'm just kind of reaffirming that, that the importance of community. And we have to find them. They don't come and knock on the door. You have to go look for that.
3: Uh, but yeah. Or just create it. <laughs> yep.
2: Yeah, I, I love what both of you said. And for me, I, I feel like I do spend a lot of time like trying to create spaces. Um, and one thing, I never guarantee safety. For one thing, I think this, past year of any years has shown us I don't really think any of us can guarantee safety right but we can do our best to set up you know even ground rules for people with how they talk to each other um, the establishment of the idea of being uncomfortable or non-closure I think sometimes we try to create what we label as a healing space and we're going to go into it we're going to commit to these so many sessions together and then we're going to be healed and We're gonna have all our answers, questions, answers, questions answered, and I think we have to be able to accept like non-closure in the process of healing itself. um, I really like what you said, David, about being able to see your own situation, see who you are, because we might need to go to different spaces for different types of healing, and it can be scary to enter enter a space because. If we're talking about healing, depending on what you're trying to heal from, it could be a re-traumatizing experience for you. And that's why I think it's really important that instead of intent, we focus on impact because no matter someone's intent as they enter a space to be in this communal healing, if it impacts someone in a hard way, we have to believe them. And so I just want to reframe like moving from this – Well, my intentions are good. I'm entering this space so that we can all heal alongside each other. Okay, great intention, but your impact is not the same. (laughs) And we just have to accept that. And like, I think that's really hard. It's scary for people to realize like their intentions might not be the same as how they're actually affecting people. But I think that's something that we have to recognize as, as we enter into spaces and listening to other people's experiences and knowing where you come from and trying to see where other people come from as well.
0: And for this next question, you all identify or have identified at some point as pastor while also working within your other wellness space. Um, How does your spiritual grounding prepare you to move and operate in the world as a wellness professional? Emily, I'll allow you to start this time.
2: Sure. When I think about my spiritual grounding, a lot of what I focus on is my values. And so my values are what guide my thoughts, my actions, and behaviors, ideally. (laughs) That's what I'm working towards, is having those values be where I'm moving forward. And I connect those values to the spiritual story that I'm rooted in, which for me is Christianity. And so my values are rooted in that narrative and in that story. And it's from that where I feel like I'm able to focus in if I can find more balance, if I'm able to connect what I'm doing in my daily life to those values, because for me, it's really important that I know that what I'm doing um, is important. And that's how I do it just by connecting to my values. Um, It's also just a matter of Perspective for me, so staying present is really important and spiritually grounding in the present. There's a favorite uh, yoga pose of mine that's actually—it's called dancer pose, where you stand on one foot and you reach, you kick your other foot behind you, and then you reach your other arm out front. And I love this pose because it reminds me of like how important it is to stay rooted in the present. But in order to balance you have to kick back and reach forward at the same time. So you have to be informed by what's happened before in your life, informed by history, but you're also reaching forward for something new. So it's like you're in the present, but you're like pulling in two different directions. And I think about that often about how important it is for me to stay here and now, but that doesn't mean I'm not informed by what's happened or looking for something new. And um, that's what I've that's what is really helps me with my spirituality and, and staying balanced.
3: Um, when I think about um, spiritual grounding as preparation for wellness work, I get the sense, or it is my sense that um, it's out of spiritual grounding that my wellness work grows. So in other words, wellness work or the work that I do doesn't just show up out of nowhere. It's an, it's an outgrowth, if you will, and of, of my own praxis. And so in so doing, I don't have to um, pull out of an empty well. I'm always pulling from where I've had a sense of groundedness or where I've created or, and practiced being um, grounded. So as such, again, I don't have to pull from an empty well. And, And I'm teaching or we're teaching from what we've experienced and also critically analyzed and paying special attention to how we show up in the world. So everything that I attempt to teach is grounded in, my spiritual practice in of being grounded out of uh, what I have thought about critically and, and examined how these practices um, form and shape me in the world and how I interact with others.
1: Um, so, you know, f- I was for fourth generation not United Methodist but not my parents, my grandparents um, I was a fourth generation Methodist minister in my family, so I come from a long, long line of Methodism um, and so that also means that I have a lot of baggages right uh, and I think I've really really struggled uh, and I think I still do honestly about my Christian identity, what does it mean to be called a Christian? And I think there was a time in my life when I was very critical. You know, I think there's a time when I was pastoring church in Boston and I stumbled into, in, in, in Cambridge, Boston, where I live, there were a lot of Zen Buddhist centers and I just started going to meditate. And, you know, at first I kind of felt weird about it, but I more than did it. Um, I started to develop a little more compassionate towards myself and even towards Christianity. <laughs> and like, it was like different way to, for me to circle back to Christianity and to, not to have such a critical lens through which I understand Christianity, but to have a little more compassion and to be able to love church even, uh, even with all these words and history of racism, sexism, homophobia, like, you know, to be able to embrace that. And uh, I think I've learned to do that through uh, meditation. And it's very much like, you know, what Bondi, remember Bondi, uh, as Way God Love, uh, her book, there was a, there's a story where she is dreaming and, and reconciling and dreaming about sitting with this history of trauma and bad emotion. And I think to me, like meditation is to be able to sit with these ugly feelings that I try to always try to repress. And when I'm sitting with my meditation, these feelings of shame, uh, guilt, uh, and they're just, they come up physically. And to be able to sit with that, to tolerate that, to navigate through that, and not to be so judging towards that, and to be able to uh, put it aside uh, and have a little more perspective, I think those kind of spiritual practices helped me to uh, be in the church. uh, And, uh, you know, I call it detoxing, honestly, because those are my chattering that happens. Like, why did you say that? Why did she say this? You know, this rumination going on and just kind of detoxing and putting it uh, and sitting with those feelings, putting it, not judging, but to be able to observe some of those things. happens to me and I think that has helped me to really like what Emily said really be grounded uh, and to be present and have some more clarity on where I need to be and how I need to be in the world uh, so that's helped me a lot and I know that even with my clients that I, I have those who do mindfulness practice and who do meditation and meditation doesn't have to be Buddhist uh, Christians do too uh, you know the Ruwa, uh, Holy Spirit, the very root word of that is breath of God. And to do breathing meditation, to be able to invite God into you, is uh, really a place of centering. Uh, and I think that's been helpful to a lot of people. It's been
0: helpful to me.
3: I can, I can say that uh, when I started meditating, that my prayer life. I think became far more fruitful. Yeah, so I, I love that um, and can attest to what you're, you're saying for sure, David.
0: Um, this question is for our Canler students in particular. as so well as anyone else who is trying to do school work right now, um, what would you, what are your wise words for them
2: Well, besides the compassionate piece that we've really honed in on, be nice to yourself. (laughs) I mean, I just want to say that up front, like that's such a skill that we have to keep practicing and keep surrounding yourselves by others that are compassionate. One thing that was helpful for me when I was a student at Candler, and it's really a tangible thing, is what am I not willing to negotiate on? Um, What am I not going to give up? Because when you come to seminary and you come to Canada, you're giving up a lot. I mean, you're taking in an amazing opportunity, but there's some grief there. There's some loss, especially right now in the type of schooling you're getting and the type of education you're getting. Um, so what are you not willing to negotiate for me? Sleep was huge on my priority list. And that affects your spirituality, people. (laughs) Like how much sleep you're getting, it affects your relationship with God. Um, So what is your list of things? I mean, maybe it's being able to hang out with your friends or family obligations, being able to hang out with your kids. Um, I would just make a list, and it doesn't have to be extremely long, but what are those things that you just really can't negotiate on? And I think having that as a starting point so that you can sustain yourself through your education and just as a practice for your life could be really useful.
3: I think Emily was, was peeping at my paper, because because <laughs> I, I have that, that they're 24 hours in a day. Half of that time is non-negotiable and it is strictly for me and that is my time to sleep or rest, to eat, to pray and meditate, and, and to exercise. If, if I can't do those things, then there is no way that I can be effective for all of the other um, things for which I'm accountable to and responsible for. So the non-negotiables, yeah, create That And and the the second thing that I would add to that, you know, there's a lot of pressure that comes with being in school. Um, Many of us also have families. We also are responsible for congregations. We're also responsible for you name it. So, And I say this carefully, but a B is okay. <laughs> if you don't read every word in the text, it's okay. You know, um, hone your skill for for reading. Decide what gets read carefully and what gets skimmed. And, and by doing that, it kind of forces you to, to kind of look forward to and, and clearly define what your goal is. Because when you clearly, when you can get clear on what the goal is, then that kind of sets the pace for and the boundaries for what you do. Yeah. I really love hearing that,
1: especially from a PhD student at Emory, which is really competitive. Uh, and you know, we know you're really brilliant. Uh, and so to be able to hear that from you is, is really wonderful. Uh, me, on the other hand, I, I, you know, I just have to c- confess. So my first year at Kendler, um, I didn't know what I was getting into. And I ended up taking uh, Timothy John Luke Johnson's doctoral level uh, seminar. Um, and I was just so lost, and I was looking at my fellow students, and I didn't know it was Doctor Seminar, and like, how do they know the cue source? What does that mean? Like, I just didn't. I was just so over my, you know, overwhelmed. And generously, generously, Doctor Luke T. Johnson, uh, uh, Tim Johnson, gave me a C. That was like generous, you know. And uh, I ended up having to repeat that course, uh, and you know I'm just saying, uh, you know, for those of you who are students, uh, you know, they, there's a people who do it really quickly and fastly, and efficiently and straight without any, uh, you know, but that, that's not the only way. Uh, I, I did, and I found that uh, in my mid thirties. Uh, and this was during when my doctor work at. Actually, I started my doctor work at Boston, uh, but during that time, I, had, I discovered I have a learning disability, uh, which explains so much because I was reading this much and I was getting this much back, and I was putting this much time in, but I was only getting this much back. Uh, so, you know, before that, I had uh, different words for my ADD learning disability like the worst I used to have before that was like stupidity, laziness, incompetence, you know? But like realizing, you know, those are what I was struggling with. I, I was really dedicated, I would put my time in, I had a learning disability that really guided the way of my academics. Um, so maybe, you know, maybe this is a story for you if you're countless students, go get checked out. I think there's a way that you can do that uh, pretty easily. Uh, and if you're not getting all the kind of grades that you're getting, like we've been all been saying here in this room, be compassionate, don't take yourself too seriously. There's always a way to get it done. And you not always be the traditional way, the fastest way, uh, most efficient way, but there's a way to get it done.
2: And that would just add to remember you were chosen. I mean, people believe in you. The fact that you are at a school like Emory, a school like Candler, you were chosen to be here and um, they take that, they, there's a lot of processes to go through to choose who's gonna come to the school. And so I think trying to step away from comparison of why does this person know about the Q source and this person know about X, Y, or Z or whatever it is um, and just be like, well, they believed in me. Um, let me learn how to believe in myself a little bit. That's something that I had to continuously come back to.
3: Yeah, <laughs> people don't like to, um, imposter syndrome these days is, I don't know, it's a bad word, but it's a real thing. Um, so thank you for, for raising that, Emily. You, you belong. You belong. And, and sometimes the uh, different pedagogies that we encounter and the different um, syllabi who's represented, those can at times militate against who we are as individuals and as groups. And so it's important to to name that and kind of have some awareness of that going into any program or institution. Um, we're, We're just beginning to be on the cusp of this thing called inclusivity and diversity. We have a long way to go. So if if we have some awareness of that going into the classroom or into the pulpit,
0: um, then we're all the better. Alrighty, it's time for my last question. I wish we could have this conversation for much longer, but I know you all have people and priorities to get back to. So what gives you hope?
3: What gives you hope? Simply that. Hope, like balance, is an ongoing process. Um, And every day um, I'm intentional about realizing hope um when i wake up in the morning i'm grateful I'm, I'm i'm grateful and when i can put on my my running shoes and go out that that's a source of hope for me that that i'm still here and still able to thrive um although my children my family my spouse and i were all in the house and it's all the more difficult to be productive, I have hope um, because I hear their laughter and all the noise and and the cacophony of gaming um, that that they do. Those are sounds of hope for me. Yeah, as much as it's counter to what I'm trying to accomplish, it's a source
1: of hope. Um, just talking to you guys and hanging out with the ex-Kendler's makes, it brings me like a lot of memories about Kendler, but the story that I'm remembering right now is a John Hayes' class on Psalms. And, you know, especially the last half of Psalms, uh, Book of the Men. And, you know, woe is the day that I was born. Where are you in midst of my darkness? And what John Hayes said was that um, if you are to really use strong languages and contemporize that, really cussing at God. It's like, you know, where the heck are you? You know, in the midst of all that. Um, and that we think that we, that's not possible or we shouldn't do that. But he said, that is our right as people of God. And we can wave our fists at God and say, where are you? I think that gives me hope. You know, I think people complaining and moaning, you know, you know hope is, the daughter of struggle is a daughter of hope. Uh, and to be able to struggle and not give up and not be apathetic, uh, but to still be engaged in my suffering and the pain uh, gives me a tremendous amount of hope. So when I work with my clients who struggle and who are, you know, not in the best place, that's why they're usually coming to me, but that they keep coming back and they start keep engaging in whatever the struggle, suffering that they're in, gives me tremendous amount of hope. And I know like a lot of my friends, like how do you listen to people complaining all day, every day, seven days a week, you know, in and out. Uh, But like their engagement of pain and how they are trying to navigate with that gives me tremendous amount of hope.
2: I think so too, I think that despair is almost a precursor to hope. We have to come to otherwise it's just apathy. Like we're just whatever, right? But if we have this engagement with despair, we're willing to cry, we're willing to feel, we're willing to go to therapy. That means we want change. Um, So that gives me hope. I think about um, doing it in pieces and not doing it all at once. And I think, LaRonda, your practice of gratitude can really help us with that. Like, how do I practice gratitude in pieces, which will help me hope in pieces? You know, we've been having a lot of rain and when it's sunshiny, I feel more hopeful because it's like one thing that I'm grateful for and um, being able to do that in in pieces and notice that I think not doing it all at once, um, kind of taking it day by day and saying what we can be hopeful and grateful for today and that that's enough, like I'm going to get through today. And I think that that's okay perspective to have. Sometimes it's good to look in the future, but if all you can handle is finding something to get you through today, I think that's okay too. And that, and that we can, we can take that. I find hope in nature a lot that helps me. Um, I don't have children or roommates or anything, but I have plants and I love watering plants, and there's something about, like, just watching growth that really makes me hopeful about the resiliency that there is in this world, the capacity for change. I think sometimes studying history can be helpful as far as hope goes, because, yeah, this moment is hard, but there's been a lot of hard moments. Read your Bible. Like, (laughs) we've come through a lot of different stuff, and I think Remembering that also helps me of like, you know what? I'm not unique here and this is I'm not special in this moment. Like there's people who have done this before and that, that gives me hope.
3: That, that leads me um, a thought. Um, there's also hope in protest.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, and think all of the, the protesting and the increased awareness around systemic Um, violence and trauma it's hard hard work and these stories um, in and of themselves can be re-traumatizing but I find hope and that that we are talking about these difficult difficult um, issues Um, I have hope that that people are willing to do the the hard work which makes our work all the more important
0: thanks for listening to this episode of candler and conversation be sure to like and subscribe to be updated when we release new episodes you can also visit CandlerFoundry.emory.edu to learn more about our courses, speaker series, resources, and other offerings developed with you and your community in mind.